In May 2012, a group of faculty went to Shanghai University to represent the University of Kentucky and present a series of lectures on globalization, identity, and cultural diversity. As part of this symposium, Mary Anglin, a professor in the Department of Anthropology, gave a presentation on gender and globalization in Appalachia. In this session, Anglin provided context for understanding the effects of globalization in Appalachia. Thank you. It's a great honor to be here. Um, I am delighted to have this opportunity to talk with y'all. And what I thought I would do is really, compared to the abstract for my presentation, what I realized in writing that writing that and thinking about this talk was that what I needed to do was to give you the introduction to that material. In other words, to back up and say, what is the context in which to understand that abstract, which is a description of work that a lot of us are doing on gender studies and also on Appalachian studies. And to, to understand where our arguments come from and how we want to talk about culture you have to then also understand what some of the issues are for the region that we call Appalachia, and, and also to know about what we consider to be stereotypes or simplistic uh, images that have done a lot of damage to the region. Without understanding that as the backdrop, not just to popular culture, but also to policy on the region, then what we, look, what, what we do may sound like it's a sort of an empty argument. So I thought, okay, I'll back up and tell you the long story about how we got to that set of questions. And so that's, that's how I'm going to start. But we'll start with a couple of the questions that we're asking now in Appalachian Studies. And then I'll back up and talk about this history of discourse on the region. So this, this, these, these first two slides are questions or comments that uh, speakers and writers about Appalachia are asking that are really about positioning Appalachia as a global region and not just a, a rural, um, idiosyncratic part of the United States. So the first is, the question is how will we locate ourselves as both Appalachian and global citizens and how will we link with those voices speaking from the margins and, and the fringes of global power elsewhere? So it's about inviting a comparative analysis. Barbara Allen Smith writes, and this is a bit longer, some of my slides are somewhat text-laden, the connections that global capitalism creates are not confined within national borders, much less vague regional boundaries. The most strategic relationships we need to create may not be intra-regional, may not just be confined to Appalachia, but may be translocal. And if we follow the money that, that is ultimately destroying and reconstituting community after community in Appalachia, to what other local places and larger relations of power will that take us? That's really, I think, one of the, the central questions of the time. I, I add this comment that comes from Ann Kingsolver, who's written a book called Tobacco Town Futures, and what she talks about here is this notion of placing, the notion that, that identity is, is linked to region, to a sense of place, and that it that it's it also can be quite complex. It can, it can mean that, in, as she notes, in any moment, one's in a maze of, of shifting context, that, that it's not just confined to Appalachia, but that it deals with memory, identity, livelihood, a sense of landscape, and a, se a sense of connection to other networks that extend beyond the region. 
So that's where we are in Appalachia, in Appalachia studies today. Those are some of the questions that we're asking that really link us to activists, to sets of questions about culture and economies that are international. And some of us will say, and as will be one of my points here, that there's a long history to that. But let me get, to, get us to that history. And first, I'm giving us, um, and we're going to go through these next couple of slides really quickly. That's just a map of the region of Appalachia. And if you switch on to the next slide, um, this is the Appalachian Regional Commission, which is a governmental agency's definition of Appalachia. What you need to only know is that it involves 13 states. Um, one state, West Virginia, is totally included in Appalachia. The other 12 states are, have parts of the states that are included within Appalachia. And um, compared to the rest of the United States, almost a half of Appalachia is rural, but not all of Appalachia. Actually, if we look at 42% of the region's population is rural, that tells you that, that nearly 60% is actually not rural, which is a, a, against one of the stereotypes. Um, I'm going to go through these slides really quickly, and I'm not going to read them. The point that, that this slide makes and the next slide are that one of the ways that we define Appalachia is not just geographically, but economically. We, do, we typically define Appalachia as a place of great poverty, and we look at it as a, as a region that's been heavily dependent on extractive industries, in particular mining, but not just mining, forestry, chemical industries. I'll, be, I'll talk briefly about mica, which is another mineral. Um, and its poverty rate exceeds that of the, of the nation. And its poverty rate in 1965 was higher than it is now, but it's a poor region in relation to the, next, to the rest of the country. Okay. Um, this is a slide that just says that even when the Appalachian Regional Commission says Appalachia is doing so much better, it notes, well, Guess what? It still has a long way to go. It's uh, and, and in, in relation to the most recent economic uh, recession, some of the ground that Appalachia made up in the late in the late 20th century has been lost. So go to the next slide, which I will talk about in a little bit more detail. Um, this is a, I think the only slide that I have any uh, figures on, any statistics. But I think there are two things that are, there are several things that are staggering to me. One I didn't know, which was that in the, in the recent economic recession, all the jobs gained since 2000 have been lost in Appalachia. So any job gains, any employment gains, gone. The Appalachia, which is true in other parts of the U.S., the poorer parts of, of the country have done the worst in the recession. Those people have been differentially affected. Um, unemployment is higher in Appalachia. Unemployment refers only to those people who are still trying to, to get jobs. People who are considered to be discouraged job seekers don't, don't figure into those statistics. And in some regions, if you actually looked at the people who had given up trying to look for jobs, unemployment would look like it's well in excess of 50%. So we're talking about great poverty. And the other thing is that is the per capita, per capita market income is only three quarters of the national income. So in other words, people in Appalachia are way, way poorer in terms of income than the national average. And though it sounds like the federal government, if you hear some, some kinds of agency descriptions that the federal government invests more heavily in Appalachia, in fact, it only in, it invests 
well less. It's a third of what the U.S. government invests in other parts of the, of the, of the United States. So Appalachia is a place that's been excluded in a lot of different ways, and its economy has suffered. But the way, if you go to the next slide, the way that that gets described is not that there's a failure of government policy or a failure in terms of the way uh, companies and corporate corporate uh, entities deal with the region, it's seen as it's an attribute of the people. The reason that people are poor in Appalachia is because they don't have the, the correct kinds of traits and the, and the sufficient amount of education and ambition to take advantage of opportunity. So, so we have this notion that Dwight Billings has called Appalachian exceptionalism. It's poor because it's an exception to, to the rest of the country. And, and everything that's distinctive about Appalachia is also a contributor to its poverty. So there, and this is a kind of what we'll call discourses, a set of images or a set of stereotypes that have a long history. That history, as I note here, really goes back to the 19th century, to right after the Civil War, there became almost an industry in writing about the region for popular magazines that were, that were geared to a national audience. Those were not written for people in the region, but for people scrutinizing the region. And they were written often by people who don't know the region or barely spend any time We call that the local color movement. And, and that was followed by what we talk about as the culture of poverty, and I will describe these in more detail in a minute, that, that really in some ways it started in the mid-20th century, but it continues into the present in terms of stereotypes. I was saying to one of my colleagues, there are movies that are going to play in the U.S., I think, this month that are about the feuds in Appalachia. And what they do is they present bloodthirsty sort of they seem like they're mad or, or insane people that are just about revenge and who have no sense of decorum or stability. They just are about trying to destroy each other and that it becomes a kind of a, a blood game. That's, that's the kind of images that we still have in Appalachia today. And it would be one thing if that were just the media, but it's also the way people think about the region and it becomes a pretext for excluding the region from a lot of considerations. So here, is, here are some examples. And again, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read these slides in detail because they've got a lot of verbiage on them. But I wanted to give you a couple of examples. This notion of a strange land and a peculiar people, or sometimes it's the land that time forgot, or our contemporary ancestors, we get that, or they're relics of a pure Anglo-Saxon race, meaning that they're just they're just white and they're descended from Great Britain. And this notion that John Fox talks about, which is that the mountains isolate people and that over time they get cut off from all communication, sort of with, from all civilization, and so they become, in fact, the closest link that we have with the old world. They're like this sort of pre-modern pre entity with probably lesser ability to think or to imagine or to plan. And so they're lost in time. That becomes even um, more negative when we look at the stereotypes of the mid-20th century, mid and late 20th century, that we call culture of poverty, which is saying that this, the culture, what the culture does is it, it, it is itself impoverished, and it really lends itself to greater poverty 
and to kind of uh, a kind of destitute way of, of being in the world. Uh, Arnold Toynbee talked about the melancholy spectacle of a people who acquired civilization and then lost it. So it's sort of like their depravity was such that they couldn't even hold on to the benefits of modernity. Jack Weller has talked about in his in the book Yesterday's People has talked about Appalachians as fatalistic, lacking ambition. They have no they're ignorant. They have no education nor any desire for education. They're unintelligent. They're and they don't care about taking care of themselves or each other. That would be you could say, well, it was a book written in the 1960s, but that book is still cited in medical literature. If you went to an article in some of the major journals of medicine today, that would be the book. If somebody was writing about Appalachia, about a health issue at Appalachia, that would be the one citation that they would have. Now imagine what that does when you start from the standpoint of thinking people are, are in this really kind of bizarre situation you would think they're beyond help, and what you have to do is kind of help them against themselves. You have to work against their nature. That would be the way you'd understand the issue. And likewise, Rupert Vance really said the problem for Appalachia is that mountain isolation then became this problematic attitude. And that has been the reason for all the problems the region has encountered since you know, its settlement by Euro-Americans. There's a lot to, that I could say beyond that, but I'll, I will stop with that. And what I wanted to go on to do is say the persistence of these stereotypes can be seen in a lot of different ways. I just mentioned um, a documentary, co-documentary on US TV, but we also find it when then-President Clinton went to Appalachia. The New York Times reported on that trip and talked about how Appalachia was the poster child for American poverty. And they said, well, it's an image that persists to the, re to the region's detriment and benefit. I don't know where the benefit can comes in, no matter how much times change. Robert Schenken, who a lot of us writing about Appalachia particularly uh, have difficulty with, he, he wrote a play called The Kentucky Cycle, for which he won a, a Pulitzer Prize. And he based that, that play which went, it was all over the U.S. It went to New York and L.A. and all sorts of places to acclaim for, the, for at least a while. He based that play on a weekend's worth of uh, fact-checking or, or research on, on Appalachia, and he concluded on the basis of a weekend that the problems that Appalachia encountered economically really had to do with, as he put it, a poverty of the spirit, a poverty of the soul. <laughs> I also thought intriguing was this last comment. What I, what, what I was witness to there was a vision of the future. It's, it's a, sort of a dystopian kind of uh, image to me. Diane Sawyer, who's another journalist, just did a, a documentary that's called Children, a Hidden America, Children of the Mountains. And I just give you one of the first sentences that introduces this. I used a little bit of her, her uh documentary in my classes in the U.S. because it's such an outrageous, um, it's a violence to people to so outrageously depict them. What you do is you try to find the worst kinds of problems. You find the people that demonstrate the most, uh, you know, vulgar ways of living or you, or you try to put them in the most vulgar light and then you say, that's Appalachia. And so these are people who are addicted to pain medicine. They don't want jobs. They haven't even thought of jobs. The kids that want to do something with their lives 
don't fit in with their families. It is just trash and, and garbage everywhere. And when I talk about that in my classes at the University of Kentucky, there's usually somebody in the audience who's from the region, they'll say, yeah, you can find that, but that's not how we live. And it's really important for me to have those students there because they represent the fact that popular media uses Appalachia in a particular way that has nothing to do with their lives. So what I want to do is to talk, and I'm not going to go through all of these uh, citations. I wanted to give you a sense that at least since the 60s or 70s and really more in the 70s, there's been what I'd call a kind of revisionist scholarship on the region. One of the things that people have been doing is to, is to look at the history of the region to understand that it's, it's always been more complex than these depictions, and then to be able to, to build upon that an, an understanding of what's distinctive about the ge geography and the culture and the people and the history in terms of <coughs> economic relationships without reconstructing or adding to these stereotypes. But well, I want to just at least pay note to a couple people here. Helen Lewis, who is now in her late 80s and a brilliant woman even now, was one of the first people to talk about Appalachia in, through the model of colonialism. And what she started to say is all these cultural images are about the colonizers of the region who are interested in the region's coal uh, trying to misconstrue culture as a way to justify their kind of rapacious greed. And for me, and it, it was an, an important book to read. John Gaventa did the same thing with Power and Powerlessness, which followed shortly thereafter, um, in the sense of saying that the so-called passivity of the region wasn't about that, it was about the domination of the coal industry. And so I want to just quickly note in relation to that, that uh, and some of the other uh, citations of the first part are about the coal industry. I want to quickly note in the bottom part of this slide this notion of the importance of social activism, social justice, and the importance of, of labor movements that have toiled in the region um, against incredible odds. And so there are a couple of, of citations there. Stephen Fisher's book, Fighting Back in Appalachia, a new book that just came out, and I wanted you to know about that in, in 2012, called Transforming Places. The, the bottom... Um, references to a, a, a strike that occurred in southwest Virginia called the Pittston Coal Strike that occurred in the 1990s. And if you don't know about it, I could go, I could talk for an hour or more on that. It was an amazing strike that actually was an international strike. People came from uh, places like Poland to try to, that were, who were in solidarity with the Pittston strikers. Um, it was against the Pittston coal mines who said, among other things, that uh, they, they, what they wanted to do, the, the impetus for the strike was that they wanted to deny benefits, health benefits, to retired miners and to the widows of miners. And they used the expression, it's like a credit card that expired. Their, their rights to health care. Theirs expired. And those were fighting words. People went on strike for a year. They ultimately won the strike, but then they, in a certain way, they lost because Piston, uh, it's a long story, but what Piston did was dissolve as a company so that they didn't really have to deal with the settlement. I'm going to go on to something that seems like it's an odd transition, but it won't actually be in a minute. I want to make it very clear that the mountains have never been purely Anglo-Saxon. That's only the case if you don't look at the initial ha inhabitants of the region, who are the Cherokee, in, at least in western North Carolina, and other native peoples. 
uh, before white settlement, and in the case of, of North Carolina, against treaties with the Native Americans. Um, and so I give you a speech of Nancy Ward, who did not want the Cherokee to sell land or seed land um, to the whites. And, and she was a beloved uh, woman, which is a major position among the Cherokee. She died in the 1920s and uh, before, as we'll talk about in just a second, the removal of the Cherokee from um, the Southeast. I also wanted to give you a, a quote from Henry Louis Gates, Jr., who is uh, the director of the Du Bois Institute at Harvard University, who comes from West Virginia, and he, who's written a, a memoir of growing up in Piedmont, West Virginia, and the importance of that as a company town where African Americans settled and lived, and the way that those company towns have been crushed when the corporations that, that employ people and, and benefited from their labor suddenly leave. And he, and he notes that for the people of Piedmont, um, that, that town snuggled between, between the Allegheny Mountains and the Potomac River Valley is life itself. And I love that phrase because it's about attachment to the land, but also attachment to the communities that live there. This is just, again, part of this uh, slide that, that is to represent part of the revisionist scholarship that sort of says, well, so how has this region been so ethnically diverse? And why, we might ask, is it not, that, is it not as diverse today? But that's a, that's a, that will be coming later. I want you to know that, for example, in parts of West Virginia, there were coal towns that that every sign actually had to have ten languages on it. it had, the sign signs were in ten languages because there were Eastern Europeans, there were African Americans, there were people from all over the world working in the coal mines, and there were enclaves that that were related to different parts of of Europe, and there were um, it was as was as likely to hear an accordion playing music from Eastern Europe as it was to, to actually hear a fiddle tune. Um, so it was, a, it was a truly multicultural area in the late 19th and really early 20th century, mostly early 20th century. There were also recruitment of African Americans to the coal mines of Eastern Kentucky that the African Americans were a very important part of the labor force and also of the union movements. And sometimes we forget that, but they were very important and in the Pittston strike, what was striking for me was that African Americans were in the minority in the, in the mine, and when they went on strike, that meant they were easily targeted by the, the gun thugs that the companies hired to try to do uh, harm to the strikers. So African Americans and women who miners, of whom there were a small number, were singled out in particular for harm, but they were brave nonetheless. There were also Jewish communities in the coal fields, which is not necessarily what you understand the, the uh, Appalachia to be, but it was also a strong place for Jewish identity, and there were skilled glassblowers in, in uh, Appalachia, among other things. So what we had was a region in the, in the late 19th and 20th centuries, early 20th centuries, that was, was multiracial and multi-ethnic. And, but what you found was what I talk about is erasing difference and the creation of white public space, which is about creating the perception of this purity and of this whiteness. And if you look at the county in Western North Carolina where I live 
a lot of the time, if you looked at the census data, it would look like it's 95% white. And that's why history becomes so important because that, that area wasn't all white. If you looked at the, as I have, if you've looked at the early 19th century documents, you find a lot of people of mixed race and you find a lot of African Americans. But, the, but with those kinds of migrations, when people move out, it's possible for the people who remain to create this kind of seamless history that looked as if they never existed. And that's why it's so important to do this history, to recover what's lost, with what, what some people have called the silences of the past. And I love that phrase. And I, and I think it's especially important with the Cherokee Nation, who, which was removed from almost all of the Southeast with the exception of Western North Carolina through the Indian Removal Act of 1830. And um, that they were removed on what we call the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma. Many, many, many people died along the way. But there persists Cherokee both on the reservation in uh, Western Carolina and as part of multiracial um, families. And, and with the changing of the census in the 19th century, if you were part Cherokee, that would not be registered. You would look like, you in the, in the late 19th, early 20th century, you would start to look like you're just white. So that was eradicated. That notion of a mixed heritage disappeared. And, and as I know, litigation, job loss, racial ethnic conflict really were forces that propelled African Americans out of many parts of Appalachia. My, the county that I live in, Western, uh, in Western North Carolina, there was a there was a uh, lynch mob that came after uh, African Americans who were accused of sexual crimes. It was it was not in fact true, but it was just incendiary enough to create such a ruckus that the National Guard had to be called in, and that everybody who was of color who lived in that county quickly disappeared. So what you have now is a white, white county because people understood that they were no longer welcome there. But if you just arrive there and if you just look at the local color thing, you think, you're Anglo-Saxon, here we are. Now what I wanted to just very briefly talk about, which is where this is really my, the starting point and the basis for the kind of work that I typically do, which is, it has to do with racial difference too, but which has a lot to do with gender, is to, to look at the place of women in Appalachian history, because a lot of times we look at coal as, a, as an industry where men were always uh, the majority of the workers, and where coal mining was in fact considered to be a, a one-wage family kind of job. So that, that wage would, would um, support households. And so there's this sort of assumption that women in Appalachia were important to kin networks, and, you know, important in the sort of background, but we're not really figures in history. That's why I love this quote from Barbara Ellen Smith that, that talks about it. Appala the history of Appalachia is a drama written largely by and about men, and that women have been the extras that, who've been hidden in the sidelines. I always talk, talk about them as being in the shadows, sort of in the, in the background of the porch or, or uh, someplace just kind of out of sight. Mother Jones, she mentions who was an important labor organizer. Again, I could that's another person I could talk about for days. And some of the women who were a part of the Piston Strike called themselves the granddaughters of Mother Jones. So she's an important figure. But but the the 
problem is also when you pay attention to one important figure, you say, well, that's the exception that proves the rule. And that's, in fact, what Barbara Ellen Smith is trying to say, that apart from those folks, really, women have been seen as peripheral and, and largely forgotten for good reason. So this is actually a re-scripting of my abstract. So you already have this in front of you. Um, but it's really saying, the point here is not just about setting the record straight. If it were that, it would be just sort of like this kind of shadow boxing thing. It's really about what do we, just as with the historical work on race, what do we recover? What do we understand about Appalachia that looks really different? If we actually look at what women do, and if we look at women's lives, not just uh, their taking care of kids, but their economic lives, the, their work as farmers, their work as work in workplaces, as part of Appalachian history, and to follow up Barbara Ellen Smith's point, what do, we, what do we learn if we actually take very seriously what women do in households and how they take care of, of kin's people and the mementos and family stories that they have, the things that they've written in their Bibles, the pictures that they have? What do we learn about the region that looks very different from what we understand in this kind of whited out, masculinist kind of view? And, and one of the things that we can say is that we, we, start to, we start to understand that women are the sources of a great amount of knowledge that's crucial, that's practical, but also strategic, that it, we can look at different kinds of power relations. We can look at how capital comes into and departs from regions and, and uh, how that changes economies and the structure of people's lives, how households persist or are unable to live because they, there's no means by which to do that. And we can look at, at um, ways in which what we might call culture or convention are used in very subtle ways to resist forms of power. So subtle that sometimes people don't even know that they're being resisted. The ways that, that gender becomes the subtext for strategic kinds of, of actions against domination by coal companies, by, by <coughs> government agents, by different kinds of forces that be. Go ahead. I, I'm going to mention a couple of um, scholarly contributions here just to show you some of the work that's going on. I, I include Mara Moore because her work is really interesting to me. What she did was inter interview women who were coal miners and about their lives and about their work as organizers because as in both cases they're seen as peripheral but their work is really very crucial. Their work is crucial not just because they help households but, they, but because they also are they were critical parts of the mines, they were critical parts of labor actions, but because of gendered scripts, those contributions, they just get ignored. They're there, but they just aren't valued. Um, so I urge you to look at that book. I love Sarah Hill's book because it's a history of the Cherokee uh, nation, and it's through women's basketry. And she talks about different eras, different historical eras, including before and after removal, and the different kinds of materials women used, and how they tell a history of the land of the Cherokee people and of their kin through their baskets. It's a remarkable book. Uh, Elizabeth Engelhart is writing about sort of different kinds of methods for studying Appalachia, and that's an edited collection that includes a lot of people who, some of whom are first-time authors in that book, writing about their experiences and writing about the experiences of women. And Emily Satterwhite is another book that's sort of looking at how popular fiction constructs Appalachia, but she does so with an explicitly gendered lens. 
going to just mention very briefly my work, um, um, which is about, uh, which is an ethnography in a mica factory in Western North Carolina. And um, I didn't actually set out to study in that factory. And I was kind of lucky because I did this in the late 80s. And I kind of, what I did was I went in on a tour of this factory by the factory owners. And it's a factory that was in de some decline. And I kind of never left the factory. I got to stay with the, sort of with the consent of part of the owners of, of the factory. And I, I sat at the tables with women as they worked, and then I interviewed them about the kind of work they did. I won't go into much um, information about that right now, but I, what I do want you to know is that mica was and is a crucial mineral. It was found in Western North Carolina, which is why that factory is there. It's also found in parts of India and uh, parts of, of the continent of Africa. Um, it's been a strategic uh, mineral, so it became very important to do that work in North Carolina during several wars, including World War II and also the Vietnam War, but I would argue up until the present. Mica is also used in biomedical technologies, which includes radiation treatment um, and CAT scans, things that are part of, of contemporary biomedicine in the U.S. So its, it's uh, use hasn't waned, but these kinds of factories, which were on the wane when I uh, was there, are all but disappeared. But what I got to do, because women worked in, the, in that factory in the major labor force, I got to watch gender at work on the factory floor, including how people subverted the authority of the supervisors and looked out for each other. It was a fascinating um, kind of situation. And I went to church with a group of people, and so I watched how they negotiated what they did at work and what they did in their communities and how they understood and their work, and they also placed that as is not the most significant thing that they did, but the way they made a living, and and how they then acted strategically when things would happen with the economy and their jobs would be lost temporarily because people would be um, laid off periodically. That was a sort of a regular cycle in this factory. So it was a fascinating way to look at strategic practices of gender and also to look at the complications of class and religion um, and how those, those really meant that, that as, as some people would say, they were kin but wouldn't claim each other, so, and meaning that there would be different kinds of factions or, or groupings within that factory, and what that meant at times in terms of both the ways that people could do, deploy some sense of power and autonomy, but also how the workforce, or the, excuse me, the uh, managers could use those differences against the workforce. So I'm going to come to the end of my talk here and just say, really, the point of Appalachia, the way that I want to look at Appalachia, is really as a global region which is characterized by a distinctive geography, a strong sense of identity. I think that we would all talk about Appalachia as a place that people claim and claim with a, a great deal of intensity. But it's not um, in the simplistic terms that the local color movement would have us believe, or the culture of poverty folks would, would want us to, to um, accept as sort of the fate of the region. And it, it persists in, as a heterogeneous region with respect to race, ethnicity, nationality, and class. Um, and there are new forms of migration into the region with Latinos coming into Appalachia and with the, with the 
reconstruction of Appalachia as a, a global site, but it maintains this, a history of economic and political exploitation, as well as a strong tradition of, of activism. And I, what I wanted to end with is that my last comment is that I think that there are connections to be made here with other peoples and places internationally, that that is partly on the basis of geographic similarity, but also on the basis of shared concerns about social justice and about the importance of culture. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences and the American Studies Center at Shanghai University for making this podcast possible.